You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. Today we're joined by Michael Cocking. Mike's a partner at the Melbourne-based Ogilvy Cocking and Mead Golf Course Design Company. A former elite amateur who came through the Victorian Institute of Sport pathway, Mike was the Victorian amateur champion in the year 2000. He also held the first round lead at the Australian Masters in 2001, ultimately finishing tied sixth behind Colin Montgomery. Despite flirting with the idea of a pro career, serendipity seems to have been in play when Mike Clayton Golf Design were commissioned to work at Cocking's home club of Peninsula. Mike picked up a part-time job on the project, and this decision would lead him towards the bright lights of golf course architecture, and ultimately a partnership in his own firm. OCM, his design firm, have a serious renovation and restoration back catalogue in Australia, including Kingston Heath, Victoria, Peninsula Kingswood, Royal Queensland, RACV Healesville, and Bunny Dune, to name but a few, in addition to Yangtze Dunes, the number one ranked course in China. Over the past few years, OCM have made inroads into the United States through an initial commission at Shady Oaks in Texas. This project undoubtedly led onwards to the preparation and acceptance of a master plan for the iconic number three course at Medina, which incidentally is due to host the President's Cup in 2026. These successes have no doubt aided a number of additional opportunities in the United States, which we will hear more about today. OCM are amongst a coming wave of contemporary golf designers that are investing the appropriate time and effort in building their own work with their own people, and in so doing, they are maximizing a limited output reflective of all that is good in an arts and crafts approach to conceptualizing, building, and finishing golf courses. We really do hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Mike. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. Thank you, Shane. I know you've been racking up the frequent flyer air miles of late. Where do we find you today? Well, I'm home at the moment, so I'm actually in Melbourne. Um, yeah, which is nice. Um, since probably we, we, we've got a few projects in America, which is terrific. Um, but as a result, I've sort of been commuting basically. So two or three weeks in America and then two weeks home. And, then, and I've been doing that since kind of uh, November or December, I guess, November. Um, and my, but my wife, she, she works with BP and um, their head office is in London. So she's dis- so we've kind of ships in the night. She's disappeared to London. So I'm home for about a four week period, which is really nice. So looking after the kids and getting a few things done that, that I just need kind of time to think about. So it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know uh, that you're you're in midwinter over in Melbourne at the moment, and I understand it's a great time for golf in Melbourne. However, seeing some recent pictures of you on Twitter straddling continents, as you alluded to there, I'm assuming you've probably not had too many recent opportunities to play any sandbelt golf. No, I, I played twice at Peninsula a month and a half ago. And I'm not sure I've played around since Christmas other than that. So yeah, it's pathetic, I know. <laughs> well, it, it, in, in terms of, in terms of doing some research for this particular chat, 
uh, it sounds like golf is a bit like riding a bike to you. So no, no problem with you taking extended, uh, extended leave and still being able to find the center of the club face. Um, yeah, as long as I get a, a hit or two on the range beforehand, I'm, uh, it's okay. It's generally all right. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. For sure. Listen, we might we might bring you back to the 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 days of of watching Nick Faldo and Curtis Strange in your grandparents' oh, yeah. house. Yeah, I believe a Harrison Ford and Nick Faldo <laughs> fascination developed we would initially obviously lead you in the in a golfing direction. I believe you you took the game up uh, with with your dad. Um, yeah. At the same time. In hindsight, this seems to have been a great decision. I should go on to become the Victorian amateur champion in the year 2000 uh, and mm -hmm. the following year in 2001, you'd uh, hold the first round lead at the Australian Master at Masters at Huntingdale, which uh, incidentally, I believe you've uh, you've got the commission there to, to, to renovate the golf course. So all very exciting. Yeah. Ultimately, obviously, you finished sixth in sixth place behind the winner, Colin Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's clear you can play a bit. I'm just wondering how much influence did the opportunity to travel in Europe with, I believe, a borrowed copy of Tom Doak's Confidential Guide. How much of an influence did that uh, opportunity have in your career path and the ultimate decision to forego a professional playing career? I was a bit, yeah, it was a big um, factor, you know, kind of a sliding doors moment, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I was a, a good golfer. Um, I wasn't like, you know... A, once in a generation kind of golfer. I was, I was decent. Um, and I traveled, you know, I was in the Australian team and state teams and things. And, and so I got to travel and, but it was just kind of pre-internet. So, and my boss, I, I just worked part-time at a golf shop and he happened to come upon a copy of Tom's book. It was the, it was the, the one before, so it was the one in the Burgundy cover. So Tom did that limited edition. He did a really limited edition for some very close friends, which apparently was brutal. And then he... Have you seen any of that content? I haven't. No, I've heard about it. But apparently it was like he absolutely just ripped um, <laughs> some well-known architects. <laughs> no filter whatsoever. No, none. None whatsoever. And then I think, I think the Burgundy one had had some edits... And then when it went to commercial production, it had more edits. You know, it was it was softened again, which is the one with the sanitized. Yeah, yeah, which is the one with the you know the picture of the him and the dog you know hitting off. Or I think it's him anyway. Um, so it was so to, yeah. Back to the point. So it was pre-internet, and to be honest, most I mean I was all in on golf. Like I up until about the time Pat Cash won Wimbledon, I wanted to be a professional tennis player. Um, my dad was a good tennis player. He was just a good sports person. You know, he was good at baseball, good at tennis, whatever. And um, I loved tennis. I was all in. And then, um, yeah, I, I would get dropped off at my grandparents' house before school because my parents were teachers and had to get to school, had to get to their places of work earlier than I had to start. So I was there for an hour every morning. And I'd watch just whatever on TV. But one of these mornings I was flicking through and the golf was on and it was the 88 US Open, Curtis Strange and Faldo. And it was the last round. And I was into sport. It's not like I didn't know what golf was, but I, it was a thrilling finish. And so it really captivated me. And they tied. And the best thing was the next day I got to watch it again. Um, so I watched the playoff. And that was probably, that was the time I really became interested in the game. Uh, my parents had both 
like a lot of people, I guess, midlife decided, um, maybe I'll take up golf. And they used to drag my sister and I along on weekends for, for their lesson and nine holes. And we hated it because we had to walk around the golf course and I was probably, you know, eight or nine and wasn't interested. Um, but as a result, that they had their clubs still and they, the clubs were kind of in the attic. And um, so after this sort of Curtis Strange, Faldo duel, and, and you're right, I was barracking for Faldo because I thought he looked like Harrison Ford. Um, so I was shattered that he lost. Um, you know, we found these clubs or I found these clubs and just started knocking them around the backyard. We, we had a property that, it wasn't huge, but it was, um, there was a bit of a backyard. So I could kind of, there were some plastic balls and I just kind of, you know, started chipping around and swinging. And, and my dad saw that and saw that I was interested. And we sort of then went to a driving range and suddenly with me being interested, that was a reason for him to perhaps take it up again. And, and that was kind of the journey, you know, into golf. This is a very rambling answer to a question. So I apologize. But um, so then to get back to the, the doke thing, yeah, I, I was, um, working at a golf shop, got this copy of Tom's book. And it was around the time that I was into some, um, you know, state teams and national teams and things. And really at that point, pre-internet, you, it was very difficult to, to read reviews of golf courses that weren't puff pieces. You know, I mean, everything, if you think about it, was, you know, all the magazines, were, they were usually virtually paid adverts. And so there was never anything critical written about a golf course. And to be honest, there was never anything really about the architecture. It was all about the experience or the aesthetics or the, oh, you know, the condition of the golf course. And, and I guess there were some architecture books around, but I wasn't aware of them because it wasn't, you know, in my sphere. And um, when I got, he gave me Tom's book to read and I kind of, I found it so refreshing that here was this book that kind of stripped back it exposed me to architecture. I'd never really thought about it that much. To, to be honest, at that point, I probably judged golf courses on their condition. You know, if they're beautiful fairways and greens and what have you, I was probably swayed by that. And I, I didn't realise there was more to it. And so Tom's book, suddenly I'm reading these reviews. It was particularly pertinent when he talked about the Australian courses because I knew about them. And then I... Um, when I started going on these trips, I would write away, you know, because it was pre-internet. So I wrote letters to Swinley Forest and I wrote letters to Sunningdale and Doorknock and you name it, wherever I had a tournament, you know, I was playing the St Andrews Lynx Trophy and I arranged to go and see three or four different courses in the area. And then we were playing in the north of England and I'd, you know, <clears throat> write away to, you know, some other, we were playing in Blackpool and so, you know, obviously the courses in the area and, same in Ireland. So, so I started getting exposure and seeing these courses. Most of the, the clubs were generally fantastic, I found, if you rode away and didn't cold call. Uh, they, were, they were so supportive and I'd kind of explained to them that I was interested in design as well as being a good player. And most of them I played, some of them I walked, just took photos and, and that was kind of that developed the love of architecture, I guess. Um, and then... Jumping ahead, it was when I, I sort of made the trek to the UK perhaps five times in four years, maybe. And um, so playing all those major events. And, it, and I was keen on a career as a professional, um, but I'd had a few injuries. I had my wrist operated on a couple of times and, and that was very frustrating. And 
I, I had this sort of deep appreciation of architecture and it was on one of the last trips I remember I was trying to qualify for the British Open and my dad was actually catting for me he, he was over there on a holiday and um, I remember I was ahead of the cut line with two holes to go I was playing Camberley Heath and there's, it's a blind a 17th I think it was a blind par four over a hill and he put my bag up over the hill on the right and I went back and hit my shot and um, a couple of spectators bailed me up and said, oh, your ball actually hit your bag <laughs> with your tee shot. Uh, two shot penalty missed by one. And it was just, I was kind of, I guess I was always sort of on the edge of, I didn't, being a professional didn't sit that well with me, to be honest. I, I didn't love the idea of, you know, one minute you, you've got a career, the next minute you're out of work. I loved design. I was sort of torn. And, and that was kind of the dipping point. That was the, like, I don't know whether I really want to keep doing this. And I, when I got home, I wrote a letter to, to Mike Clayton, who I knew through, um, through sort of the amateur circuit. Um, and he, their company, it, to that point, it was probably a bit of a, a hobby is the wrong word, but it, was, it wasn't their full-time job. Like they were just starting out they each had the, each of the three directors each had other jobs that you know drive they derived income from and so it was a bit of a you know it was something that they loved doing but it wasn't a full-time career and they just won the job to do a master plan at my then home club peninsula and i think they sort of could justify having someone kind of give them a hand with some things you know it was a part-time job i was kind of juggling still playing golf and, 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 and this as well. And, um, and, and so that was really the start of it. So but very much right place, right time, you know. I've, I've since uh, spoken to so many people that want to get into the industry and I'm, I, I try and be as giving as possible, but it's, there's just so few jobs and I, I consider myself so lucky that I was, I was just there in the right place. Yeah, I mean, you've nicely sashayed into the next question. So, I, as you said... Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> so so kudos uh, making my life very easy uh, I understand the peninsula as you say commissioned Mike uh, Clayton and his partners Bruce, Bruce Grant and John Sloan to carry out a course renovation project toward the, uh, towards the end of the 1990s yeah. obviously this decision you, you being in the right place at the right time enabled you to pick up the part time job on the, the renovation crew just wondering uh -huh. what are your abiding memories about those first few days in the office and on site well, it was a very steep learning curve, you know, trying to, I just, I guess then, and it's advice I've given to others, I just tried to be a bit like a sponge, really. Um, it was a very interesting company because the three partners brought quite different skills to the table. You know, you had Mike, who well-travelled, very good golfer, great golfing sort of brain, almost a... a a photographic memory, I would say, on, on many elements and, and good with a lot of the theory on, you know, he's well-read on design. Uh, John happened to fall in, I, I don't know whether it was by choice or by design, but he kind of ended up basically running the company. He was the managing director. He had a good business brain, but he was an excellent turf manager. So he'd become a, a, a highly sought-after consultant. And so I, from him, I learned so much about turf. You know, I didn't know the science of, of, of turf. And so, and, and in what we do, it's so valuable. You know, you can't just think about what we do in terms of design and, you know, the 
the, the geometry of positioning bunkers. And I mean, there is such a close relationship between you know turf management and, and design. And so I learned a lot about you know turf and construction techniques, and uh, even just sort of handling yourself in meetings and things. And and then Bruce, you know, who, who sadly is not with us anymore, which makes me you know very sad, was. I don't think he could articulate it as well as others, but he was a great designer and, and brilliant at building, at constructing. So he's kind of between the three of them, it was a, such a great environment to learn. Um, but at the same time, we kind of, around the time I joined, and it wasn't because of me, um, but, well, well, so within two weeks of me joining Ashley Mead started with them as well. So, so in many ways, our, our current company kind of started back then in, in my mind because we formed a very close relationship and have sort of been design collaborators ever since. We kind of think very similarly, bounce ideas off each other constantly. Um, and so very early on, we, we formed a, a very close relationship. And it was a, it was a great period because the company sort of started taking off around that time. So prior to that, it, it was, you know, like I say, not, not, not a hobby, but it wasn't a full-time affair. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the work at Peninsula <clears throat> uh, kind of went along and, and was, um, you know, viewed in a very favourable light. And then, you know, they got work in, in Perth and Adelaide and Sydney and Queensland. And it sort of, there was a six or seven year period there where, you know, got, we got a lot of work and we all kind of fed off each other. And they were very giving, they were very, um, you know, they allowed us a lot of freedom. And I, I consider myself very fortunate. I got to lead the design, or well, I was the designer at um, RACV Hillsville, which was a, a little country golf course that honestly, if there's 1,600 golf courses in Australia, this would have been somewhere between 1500 and 1600. Like it was, it was a very simple country golf course that happened to be owned by a very profitable company in the RACV. And they, I remember that when the CEO took over RACV, the first year he took over, they made a million dollars. The second year, 40 million. The third year, 80 million. The fourth year, 120 million. And then every year, and then every year it was 120 million, 140 million, and they were a mutual. So they put, they wouldn't retain the profits. They'd put them back into member services. So suddenly they had this asset in the RACV country club. And it's like, well, why, why wouldn't we upgrade that? So they spent 100 million on the site, beautiful, big new building, accommodation, clubhouse, but golf as well. And, you know, I was 26 and, um, you know, that was probably four of the most enjoyable or three of the most enjoyable years in the industry because, it, you know, you store up when you get it, first get into it, you know, you've got all these thoughts and ideas about what you like and, you know, oh, if I was ever given the chance, this is what I'd do and, and holes that inspire you. And all of a sudden here I was at 26, the company happened to be busy elsewhere. So I think that probably helped that I was afforded the chance to just to, to have at it. So you know, that, that was a brilliant opportunity. And, you know, there's probably some things you might do differently now, but it, it really the only way, um, you know, it's such a, a steep learning curve and the only way you can get to ultimately where, you know, where we are now is, is to, to have those sorts of opportunities. Um, yeah, so, so that was an incredible experience. 
Yeah, um, I think mentioning RACV Healesville, I think you've jumped over my next question. So if I can drag you back to St. Andrew's Beach, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. the Mornington Peninsula, yep. which I believe was probably a formative learning experience for you, in addition to what you've just talked sure. about there. Yep. Obviously, t- Tom Doak, Eric Iverson, Brian Slonick were all involved of Renaissance uh, Golf. Um, as I said, you first cut your teeth in the new build project at the St. Andrew's Beach development on the Mornington Peninsula which was a Mike Clayton and Tom Doak co-design project. Because first of all, maybe for those listeners not familiar with the Cups country area on the Mornington Peninsula, which is located some 60 minutes south of Melbourne CBD, perhaps you could tell us why this area is, first of all, so great for golf. Yeah, it's it's not Lynx land, so it's not in tr- in the truest sense of the word. It's not the, the land linking the, you know, it's not right on the beach. It, it's actually inland a little bit, and they're, they're bigger scale dunes. They're these huge, I mean, it's called Cups Country because it's kind of like, you know, you turn your palm over and, you know, it's all these sort of, but they're, they're big in scale. They're, they're probably, there's plenty of, that are between 60 and 100 foot high. Um, there is some small scale movement, but not um, nothing like you see on really sort of uh, coastal sites close to the water it's it's typically broader contours so it's, it's ideal for golf because the contours are broad enough that you can typically lay out holes across the top of the dune or run through the dune or or, or play over the dune so um yeah we it had been looked at previously putting a golf course on this land and then in sort of 2000 and maybe one um i guess tom Tom had pitched for the job at the National Golf Club um, many years prior before he became well-known and, and missed out on that opportunity. They, they ended up going with uh, Norman and, and uh, Peter Thompson. And um, there was a chance here with uh, St Andrews Beach that, that he got into the mix and then there was an opportunity to or maybe... Um, We could kind of work together on it. So with 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 um, Mike, John, and Bruce's company, and then at the same time, Barn Bugle came along. So in the end, there was sort of three golf courses. There was the two at St Andrews Beach, and Barn Bugle, and so they were great opportunities. I got to walk um, Barn Bugle dunes, you know, on Tom's first visit, which was a, an incredible experience to kind of see how he approached the routing process. And I still remember being just so impressed with, I mean, he'd never fo- stepped foot on the site, but he knew intimately what was over every dune. He knew, we didn't have a plan with us either. So he knew the routing he'd come up with was just imprinted in his brain. We were sort of, you know, we were down in a valley and there was a hill in front and he's sort of talking about, yeah, once we get over there, there's going to be a saddle and then I've got the hole going this way and doing this and doing that. And I was like, <laughs> wow, it was very impressive. Um, and then at St Andrews Beach, we probably had more of an opportunity, and 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 me personally, to, to get involved in that routing process. So Tom had laid out one of the court. He'd originally, Tom had routed eighteen holes. I think it was eighteen holes, but they wanted to build thirty six, and so we sort of adjusted his eighteen, and then we designed another eighteen, and then Tom came across and we sort of edited both. But so, you know, one of the, unfortunately, the course that we essentially had routed never got really built. That was the, the lost one that you referred to. 
um, the one that Tom was predominantly, you know, 90% of, of, of that is really Tom's routing and then there's 10% that we, um, that we've been involved with. And um, yeah. And, and Ashley, my design partner was heavily involved down at Barnboogle Dunes to kind of project manage that whole process. And then I sort of did a similar thing at St. Andrew's beach and yeah, it was, a, it was such a great opportunity to learn from one of the best that we will ever see really uh, in Tom um, and, you know, I've talked about this before in presentations and things that it, it really, aside from kind of learning from him just some of what he saw in terms of design and routing, one, one of the biggest uh, things that we took from it was how they operated because prior to that point, pretty much every golf course in Australia, whether it was a redesign or a new build, the traditional way of approaching it was to do a detailed set of plans and to give them to a contractor and then the contractor would build it and you know the architect might pop in once every whatever week maybe month but a lot of the product was a result of the, the set of plans and Tom approached it differently suddenly his guys his staff essentially were building the work and it was based on a concept but then they were uh, in the field they were making improvements as they saw fit and, and this was, for both Ashley and I, you know, this was so different to the way everyone else worked, but it made so much sense. And within, you know, within a very short space of time, we were convinced this is the right way to, to approach things. And if you think about it, you know, it makes no sense to me now that why would, you, why would you hand all your IP over to a contractor so that they can then go and work for another architect? You know, why, why wouldn't you work with your own staff who understand how you think and where you can, with very simple instructions or a very simple plan, you can kind of explain, you know, we want this green a little bit like the sixth at wherever or the second, or, you know, how we did that mound at whichever job it was, it's how we want that to work. And so it just made a lot of sense to us. So when we started OCM, that was very much in the forefront of our minds was that we want to be a design and build company. And, and that's how we've set the company up. We own, you know, it's in Australia, we're very much a turnkey sort of operation. We have... Uh, three or four full-time shapers we have a project manager we have the three of us and it's very much a collaborative effort you know we don't pretend to have all the knowledge by any stretch and um you know so, so there's been projects here where we, we've actually or at the moment down at Lonsdale we're also doing the maintenance but um typically though everything from sort of that first concept sketch right through to to grassing really we like to look after um in America, it's a bit different. It, it's not practical to take all your staff over to America, but we certainly, on the projects over there, still have one of our shapers and, and we'll just work very closely with a, a large contractor. I've heard you speak about the neoclassical golden age uh, that we're now in potentially as a return to the arts and crafts movement, in essence being much more a hands-on and selective uh, opportunity in terms of boots on the ground, taking the appropriate time to get the projects right from a construction and finishing perspective, and I guess not trying to, trying to take too many projects on simultaneously. How important do you think it is to OCM to design and build your own work through the direct auspices uh, of, amongst others, your partner Ashley Mead and obviously Jason McCarthy? And how does that approach translate into facilitating the delivery of the most optimal work? Uh, no, it's... it's, it's um we, we have worked on projects in, in the past where we have worked with a contractor and that 
um, just further cemented our belief that it is not the way to go about getting the best results. So we, we will only take on projects in Australia that we can build ourselves. We're not interested in, in working another way. Um, you know, occasionally the scale of a project will warrant a, another contractor being involved to do perhaps some of the heavy lifting or, you know, things like irrigation installation we're never going to, you know, we're never going to profess to be experts at. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, for us, construction really is just a natural extension of the design process. So we, you know, but by working in that way, <clears throat> you know, I, I guess... Uh, I've talked about it before where there's sort of two camps. There's kind of a, there's designers that are very plan focused and then there's the sort of the, the guys that are more boots on the ground in the field. And I, and I guess for me, you know, if you're, if you're very plan focused, it's almost a belief that the plan is king and that site visits are checking to ensure that the contractor is building it as per the plan. Whereas I guess going about it the way we do, by working off a concept, every time you visit, you're, you're still looking at things and deciding, is, could this be better? You know, you're always striving for it to be better. And if that means deviating from the plan, well, so be it. You know, maybe one bunker becomes two, maybe you move green, something's not working. And so I, th I think that approach, you are always, at the end of the day, you're judged by what you leave on the ground, not by the, the set of plans. And so I think we're always striving to, to get the very best result from the from the bit of ground in question. Do you think that maybe sometimes where a club or an organisation is involved as the client, the plan and the piece of paper gives them tangibility, gives them something to, rather than the great unknown of, well, this is just conceptual, here it'll look something like this, it may look like exactly like this, it may look completely different, but, but that for want of a better word, that uh, discordance, if you like, in terms of a conceptual idea, some people have a difficulty of, well, you know, it's probably the idea, hard, long, tough, that's a good golf course. So it's, it's kind of probably, it's ingrained in people's heads maybe for 50 or 60 years of groupthink that this is the way things, things, things work. This is the way we've always done it. <clears throat> yeah. No, no, and, and look, early in our careers, it took a lot of convincing that of this approach, I have to say. Um, and, you know, in, in describing it the way I have, I don't want it to sound as though, you know, the plans get thrown out the door and we just make it up as we go along. It's the, the I mean, the holes end sure, up being very... Sure. <laughs> no, no, the holes do end up being looking fairly similar. I mean, they're in the same, you know, if it's a, essentially a new build or you know, a major renovation, like a peninsula, for instance, the or peninsula Kingswood, the holes are all more or less where they were drawn in the master plan. But if you actually look through it hole by hole, there's differences on every hole, you know, the shapes of the greens, the, the exact position of the green, the bunkers and, and what have you. But, um, you know, the spirit of the, of the design is very much intact. It's just in terms of the execution, some of the, some of the detailing, um, you know, is, is best left in the field uh, or, or to be um, sorted out in the field. And, yeah, so, but amazingly, there's been a real shift, and I, I'm sure Tom doing work in Australia has helped 
you know, because it's very much how he operates. And so, so him being over here and doing, you know, three or four projects, it's how we've approached all of our projects. So now no one really questions it, which is surprising and refreshing. That Results. Yeah, so, so, yeah so, so they kind of understand that, you know, this is not like, build, you know, building a house or building a road or, you know, it's an organic process. And, yes, um, I mean, we can still quote and we can still get quotes based on what we've done. And they, I think they take some comfort in the fact that because we are building it, if we decide to move a green 10 metres or, or make it bigger or make it smaller or add more bunkers, there's no cost implications for the client. If we have to take more time to do it, um, well, that, it's just part of the deal. You know, we're, we're not going to then, you know, it'd be a bit self-serving if we decided to <clears throat> keep moving greens and then putting in a variation every, every time we move the green. You know, oh, I'll maybe move it back. <laughs> no, 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 go back the other way. <laughs> You know, um, we're, we're not going to do that. So, so, you know, whenever we price a project, you know, it's very much a fixed lump sum for anything to do with our work, all of our shaping, all of our design. So the only exposure that a club may have is that in, in terms of materials. So if, if suddenly a green went from 600 square metres to 1,000 square metres, well, there may be, there's a cost associated with that. But I think we're very good at project managing and keeping clubs um, you know, giving them, you know, we'll provide monthly reports and what have you. And so there, if we're thinking about doing something like that, we actually have the opportunity to explain that to them and talk through it and walk through it with the committee before we, you know, we're not just going to spring it upon them, do the work and then say, oh, and by the way, um, it's going to cost a bit more. So, so I think, you know, if, if, if you're good at that, you know, at, at managing clients' expectations and project management, then I think that process can you know, can work quite well. Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to take a look maybe briefly at the Victoria Restoration Project. Um, obviously, uh, through various iterations of Mike Clayton Golf Design, OCCM and OCM now, you've been involved on consulting at the Victoria Golf Club for many years. Um, I touched upon the early days of it, the Victoria Renovation Works with Mike Clayton in a previous episode. I was fortunate to play Vic and the completed course in January 20. I think at that stage you were probably had opened up maybe four or five months from completion. Obviously, to that point was a 25-year process of restoration, regeneration, and revision. When we think about restoration in a sandbell context, we need look no further than Graham Grant's restorative efforts at Kingston Heath in the 1980s. Obviously, Graham focused on tree management and bunker restoration reopening, revitalization, and refinding. How important do you feel Graham's efforts were towards reimagining the aesthetics uh, and playability of the Melbourne Sunbelt? I think it was, it was, he was a huge part of it. And, you know, I guess eventually it would have caught up. The whole restoration movement would have eventually found its way to Melbourne. But, uh, you know, I don't feel Graham gets the credit he should for the work he did at, at Kingston Heath at the time he did, but then for whatever reason, you know, he left the club and, um, you know, his name's not talked about enough really, but um, he and the captain of, of, at the time, um, you know, looked back at a lot of the old aerials and the old, old, a lot of the old plans and, you know, gave him an opportunity to, um, as you say, to, I mean, he removed a lot of vegetation. He brought back a lot of the bunkering. He rebuilt every tee on the golf course. You know, I mean, people talk about freeform tees now and we built a lot of freeform tees and 
so does Tom and a few others. But I think you could look back to Graham's work at Kingston Heath and, I mean, he kind of created that look around Melbourne, really. Um, up until that point, T-complexes were just flat pads, uh, peanut shapes, um, whereas he suddenly had all of this beautiful movement in and around the teeing areas that was something, you know, you'd only see on a green up until that point. And, um, you yeah, know, it was, it was a brilliant um, turf manager as well. He rebuilt a number of the greens there too. So, um, yeah, and, and that really probably started the trend in Melbourne or showed people what was possible um, in terms of, you know, restoration and redesign work. So, yeah, that was a big part, I would say. Yeah, with regard to the particularly the green sites of Victoria, they were sown with a creeping bent grass called Pure Distinction. I can honestly say that I've never encountered better putting surfaces. What can you tell us about the last phase of improvements at Vic that were completed in early 2019? So uh, we actually used Pure Distinction down at Peninsula Kingswood. So that was the first. Um, we used it at Royal Canberra. And then uh, Peninsula Kingswood chose that grass based on a lot of the trial work and, and, and the results at Royal Canberra. And then Victoria chose it, uh, having seen Victoria, having seen Peninsula Kingswood. Um, yeah, it was a it was a really interesting project. Um, Victoria's greens were some of the oldest original greens on the sandbelt, so there were probably twelve greens. Without going through them in my head, uh, twelve or fourteen greens that were still the original um, profiles, so they hadn't been changed in ninety years. So. You know, they for a long time had survived with sort of a mixture of power and bent grass greens. And, you know, unfortunately, usually when the pure bent grass greens around Melbourne are at their best, the power is probably at its worst. And I think pressure had been mounting for a number of years that they were sort of the odd ones out. You know, everyone else pretty much around Melbourne had converted their greens to a pure bent grass. So they made the decision to convert the greens and um, that was, you know, I guess that was the, the key part of the plan originally was just the greens, focused on the greens. But um, then, you know, the, given the disruption, <clears throat> other things came into play. The club needed a new irrigation system and then we were able to also convince them of, of potentially redesigning a number of greens, some of the, the non-original greens, there was some fairway bunker work, some teeing, teeing areas were redone, uh, vegetation work, some tree removal, adding some revegetation. So it became, you know, while the hood's up, so to speak, um, there was an opportunity to, to, to add in some of these other works and make it an actually pre pretty comprehensive program. Um, one of the things we did there a little differently was we, we had some very um, detailed surveying done of every green surface. So because they were sort of fiercely protective of these original green contours, the idea was to basically put them back as they were. Um, so that was our starting point. So there, of, the, um, of the 12 or so original greens, probably half of them were put back exactly as they were. And then the other half were, um, there were some adjustments made to get surface water off the greens or to add a pin position or, but, you know, 95% of the surface was as it was. Um, we looked at, you know, but <clears throat> following on from Richard Forsyth's work at Metropolitan in the 90s when he took the putting surfaces right to the edge of the bunker, that, that had almost become a bit of a Melbourne sandbell look. He moved to Royal Melbourne 
and done the same thing there. Woodlands had 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 copied that look. We did the same at Peninsula Kingswood, um, and th- and now it's kind of synonymous with the sandbelt. I would say that 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 look, and it was all based on a there was a, a line in a McKenzie report talking about how the Greens at Metropolitan seemingly went to the edge of the bunkers. Whether they did, I find it hard to believe that they went right to the edge back in the nineteen twenties, just because of you know mowing practices. But maybe they did. But anyway, that was kind of that was the that was where the idea came from. And by the time you do that, by the time you expand greens to the edges of the bunkers, suddenly the greens are getting bigger. They're expanding at the front. They're expanding at the backs. And so there's slight adjustments that you need to do in order to, you know, there's opportunities to add extra pins and what have you. So, um, so that became part of the process at Victoria. And we, we um, worked with a surveying company. We had one of our Bobcats retrofitted with some, like as a dual grade laser. And and it was an interesting process because once they were surveyed, you know, you could then do whatever you wanted to the surface. You could strip off, you know, six or eight inches. You could add sand back on and essentially get in the bobcat and get those contours back within, you know, our tolerance was five millimetres there that in terms of sign off with the club. And I know I remember doing the eighth green and it was one millimetre. It was within one millimetre of the original green. That was like, that's, I mean, that's, that's really, spectacular. One millimeter is like a couple of grains of sand. And it was like, yeah. how is this like, and, but it was interesting because you kind of, it was a, that was a true restoration. And, and, you know, a, a lot of times people talk about restorations and it's, you know, they're restoring the, the, the feel or the theme, but really they're making changes. And this was a case where you kind of, you felt like you were checking your ego at the door and it was like, you know, it, if I was rebuilding this green and it was my design, there were things that I would probably do slightly differently, but that wasn't the point. The point was to put them back basically as they were. So um, you kind of had to let the machine take over. There were there was a pretty clever piece of design work I thought we did where there were three greens there that had been quite controversial. Uh, they, were, they were severely pitched. So it's a green like the sixth there, for instance, that the pitch on that green was probably 6% slope. And, um, you know, in the 1920s when the greens were running at seven feet, that was fine. But in 2020 running at 12, it was problematic. But we were able to, by doing this survey, we were able to basically change the tilt of the surface of the green. So pivot around the middle of the green, but keep all the internal contours as they were. So the back of the green came down a foot, the front of the green came up a foot. Suddenly it went from 10% of the green being pinnable to 60% of the green being pinnable. It was still severe, but suddenly playable. And to the casual observer, to the member, it looks like the exact the, the old green. It's got all of the internal contour, but, but the tilt has changed. And, and that was that worked incredibly well. And we did that on the 11th green, the 13th green, and the 6th green. Um, and Jeff has been a member there since he was a kid. He cannot tell that those greens are any different. But all of a sudden, they've gone from being unplayable to playable. Amazing. So it was. So that was cool. And then there were then there were three greens that weren't original that we completely redesigned in 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 a style probably more befitting the original. You know the original greens. So it's a great example. I talk about it with other clubs that you know, any, any one of these changes on their own might be like a two or 3% change, but the cumulative effect of all these changes had a, a significant impact on the look and the feel of the golf course. It was amazing how it, where it went from to where it is now, uh, just by the, 
by adding up all of these little changes across the golf course. So that practice of, of surveying the greens prior to to getting the scalpel out. When did that practice begin, if you like? Uh, when did it become technically possible to do that? And obviously, it gives not only you guys comfort that you can revert back to what was there if if there's a an error or you do something that you're not happy with, but it also gives the client, I suppose, comfort that, you know, this is how we're going to do it. This is we're just going to change the pitch, as you say. It's going to look exactly the same. We've taken our LIDAR or however you did your survey points. I'm just interested to know when did that sort of approach begin in terms of, you know, an appreciation, first of all, for what was there and a reverence. I suppose it sort of feeds into that rest- restorative movement, I suppose. It does, yeah. I mean, from a technical point of view, well, and even from a, you know, it's really been probably since the, early 2000s, I would say that, you know, the whole sort of restoration movement has kind of, you know, there's been a groundswell of committees and architects searching through old aerials and archives and photos. And the idea of, you know, there's so much reverence now for the golden age architects and the idea of um, putting courses back the way they were. Um, You know, they did a similar, we were at Wingfoot recently, um, Walking around there and 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 talking with Steve uh, Rabadou, the the superintendent, and that and they took a fairly similar approach to those greens. I mean, those greens had shrunken a lot, and they they did a lot of survey work in terms of uh, when Gil did the work there, getting the greens back out to where they were and retaining those contours. Um, I mean, the leader Tom, the, the work that Tom's doing, um, and, and the the two Brian's and, and the guys at the leader. I mean, that's really only been possible as a result of. Uh, of this sort of survey equipment, basically um, reimagining the original Lido course, I would say it's probably in the last fifteen years that it's it's actually possible um, that the surveying now is so good, whether it's via drone or via you know manually. I mean, the survey at Victoria, there, there was a survey point every two centimeters across an entire green surface. Um, I mean, at Long Island we're doing a renovation at Long Island and there's a fantastic green there that was built by Vern Morecambe. Vern was the superintendent at Kingston Heath for 46 years and his dad, Mick Morecambe, Mackenzie spoke very glowingly about, he sort of said he was the best, uh, he was the best greenkeeper he'd ever come across. And he had an amazing ability to create natural looking shapes um, that were, you know, man-made. And Vern or Mick really, built all of Mackenzie's work around Melbourne with Vern as one of the, you know, essentially one of the first shapers really. And, and each of them went on to have, have careers in golf course design. Um, Vern was, well, both of them were fantastic at building greens and bunkers. Um, and they, Vern did some work down at Long Island. He, he built a number of the greens and he did some fantastic bunkering. And the third hole down there is, is one that, we would hate to lose, but it's become unsafe. It's incredibly close to one of the boundaries. And so what we've talked about there is exactly what we did at Victoria. We want to survey that in such detail that we can basically pick the green and the bunkers up and move them 60 metres further down the hole. And it's a great challenge, you know, to do that. I think there's no reason why it won't work. Um, And it'll, it'll be a slightly shorter hole, but we want to retain you know, the spirit of, of Malcolm's work there. It was such a great, um, it's such a great path through. We don't want to lose that. 
and the technology we have today, you know, in the past, it was all done through photos or, you know, feel. And um, photos are tricky because they don't show what's going on in the third dimension. So um, whereas at, uh, on the short course at Kingston Heath at the moment that we're, that we're finishing off, I kind of liked the idea of one of the greens being a copy, basically, of the 10th green on the main course. It's one of my favourite holes. And there was a flat piece of ground. And for whatever reason, I just thought it suited the 10th. So we've built a replica of it, but we've done it more through, we haven't done a survey. So we've done it through eye and through taking levels and sending the guys out to the 10th and coming back and having another look and checking. And so that's been a fun process too. And it's not, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but we've gone so far down the path of making it the same that it's like, well, now you better make sure it's, you know, you're going to look foolish if it's not really, really close. So we've sort of the last couple of weeks we've been, I've been pretty anal about, um, you know, some of the shapes and contours and things, but yeah. Oh, but a man, look, maybe if we just take a look at Bonnie Dune for a second. I had the pleasure of a number of rounds with uh, with a member there who's actually joining me over here in a week or two, a guy called Greg, uh, Greg Hall, uh, if he's listening. Hello, Greg. Um, so in January 2020 so I know you were the lead architect on the project and that it was done on, on over a number of years in an iterative sort of way um, so I'm just wondering first of all if if you can maybe let us know what drove Bonnie Dune to redevelop their golf course uh, on a, obviously on a great sand based site in uh, in Sydney it was it was at that year. It was at that time. It was 2010 where there'd been a lot of redevelopment um, of older established courses that really flown up in the rankings. And one of the the captain or one of the the committee members at the time was pretty well read reasonably across what was happening elsewhere down in Melbourne. And I guess so they they'd had a proposal from their architect at the time or their previous architect to build a new driving range in front of the clubhouse, which would have happened to take up some of the best golfing land on the property. And he was aware of that. And he thought that seemed like a really flawed um, direction. The golf course itself had been there for many years, 60 or 70 years, but it was a bit of a hodgepodge. There was some new work that was done. There was old work. They had a, um, an area that the club owned that had been a, a landfill and they thought there was an opportunity to potentially build some holes down there. So they were, I guess they were at the crossroads. They weren't exactly happy with the advice they were getting. They saw that this was a fantastic piece of land. We'd done some work. So, so basically in Sydney, there's, um, there's Bonnie Doon, East Lake and the lakes all basically touching borders all in a row. Um, all built on this amazing sandy ground. Uh, Bonnie Doon actually, Bonnie Doon had been looked at years prior as the the silica content in the sand was so high that a company wanted to buy the property to produce lenses for glasses Um, because it was 100 feet deep of just sand straight down. So it was a great golfing property. It had vegetation that was similar to the sand belt, kind of, it was called Eastern Suburbs, Eastern, Eastern Sydney Banksia Scrub. Eastern Suburbs Banksia Scrub. ESBS. Um, and it's very similar to the Heathland down here. And um, 
Yeah, so, so all of these things led to, well, maybe we should look at the market. They went out to the market and, and looked at a few different firms and we eventually won, won the project. But it's, it was such good land and, and I think the course may not have even been ranked in the top 100 in Australia, which was a tragedy given how good the land was. Um, beautiful, beautiful property. Did completing the golf course renovation over a period of years present any specific challenges? It did. Yeah, it did. Um, it's not ideal. I mean, that, that's the way they felt comfortable doing it. I think at the time they didn't want to go into debt, you know, so it was sort of done on a, you know, as they could afford to do various sections of the course. Um, so we did it over four or five stages, which pretty much took um, eight years, I would say. The problem is with that method that by the time you get to the eighth year, the work you'd done in year one, you know, they had power coming into some of the greens. That also changed superintendents a few times. And so there'd been a few changes there. So it was, by the time we got to the end, it, it almost needed a fifth stage just to try and stitch a few of the sections together a little better. So it was just a little bit more cohesive. Um, but they've, they've done an exceptional job. Um, Cam and the, the uh, superintendent there's been fantastic. Course has never been better. He's doing a, a super job. And we continue to consult there and, and make sort of some of these refinements just to make sure they've got this sort of cohesive product. So, I mean, that's the downside to doing staged work over a number of years. That The ideal, obviously, is, you know, to shut a golf course and do all 18 in one hit, but very few can afford that luxury. So... Then you then you look at nine and nine, then you look at six, six and six, and then you know every step down is you know. But they're at a point now where you wouldn't know, to be honest. If you went and played that course today, you'd have no idea that it was done. It had been done over a number of different stages. They've done a really good job of of, of getting all the pieces to to work. I know you were inspired by many outside influences, as is often the way, I suppose, in terms of design, in terms of whole designs of Bunny Dune. You might tell us about some of these influences, particularly, I know, that par five down by the, the driving range. There was some, some specific influences there, maybe in terms of Hoylake and uh, a few other places. Yeah, I think, um, I think you know, golf course designers can, can be great mimics. Um, you know, it's interesting you sort of going all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, going and seeing these great courses. I would say one of the skills of a of a great architect is to kind of is a good memory, good photographic memory, and you kind of remember the great holes, bits of them, that, whether it's the green or particular features, and you kind of store them away in the memory bank. And um, when you see a new course or a new property, it's amazing. You kind of you're going through the mental rolodex in your head and thinking through, you know, what what looks similar to this, or this looks a little bit like the first you know Prestwick or whatever and and so at um Bonnie Doon uh, the 14th hole is a par five that happened to be played alongside the so the, the land I was talking about before where I said there was a an old tip site basically we in our design we decided to use that <clears throat> so they had so much sand on site we we're able to mine the sand off a section of the property and cap that entire tip site with over you know three or four feet of sand and, and, and then plus some to create movement as well. And I guess the idea of playing a hole with a driving range next to it started thinking a little bit about Hoylake. 
and I, I played the British Amateur at Hoy Lake in uh, 2000 when in the, in the proper order where the first hole is one of the most terrifying uh, first holes in golf, that, you know, the 90-degree dog leg around a berm, with it, which is out of bounds. It's a long puff hole. Um, <clears throat> but the idea of this sort of diagonal ridge running down the right of the par five kind of took shape. It was at an interesting time of the round. It's the 14th hole, so we felt like we could create a hole there where there was a, um, you know, people are into their round enough where they may be tempted to, to kind of make the heroic carry over the ridge. Um, it had some... It had some similarities to 14 at the old course at St Andrews as well, except it was a ridge instead of a fence. So, um, yeah, the, the, the 14th there definitely reminded us a bit of um, of, the, of those two holes. There's a par four on the back nine uh, where the green's kind of sitting down at a bit of a punch bowl, which which reminded me a little bit of uh, one of the holes at Royal St Ports, the, the par five. I think it's... It's been a while now, but I want to say it's about the third or the fourth hole, perhaps, um, at Sick Ports. But, um, yeah, and, and it's quite common, really. It's it's not just a Bonnie Doon. There's, there's lots of holes, lots of courses that we've worked on where you get to a particular hole and, you know, it's it's inspired by, I would say, you know, a more famous version. Um, at Peninsula Kingswood, there's a, a great short par four we built, the eighth on the north course, which definitely has some similarities to the 10th west at Royal Melbourne uh, perhaps even for at Bamboogle June, the big dominant has it on the corner and um, kind of a, a similar aesthetic. So, yeah, I, th I think it's quite common for um, architects to, to talk in those terms. You know, the, this green will be a little bit like the second at wherever. or and, and that's where that I think that communication and that close working relationship with your shapers helps, particularly when your shapers are interested in golf and, and, and understand the holes you're talking about. Now, apropos Bonnie Doon, one recollection I have is the collection of short par fours. And I guess given the legacy of short fours throughout Australia, I'm wondering if you think that members and visitors alike feel somewhat maybe shortchanged if an Aussie course does not feature a few of these 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 uh, three and a half par holes. I think you should feel shortchanged if a, if any golf course doesn't have a short par four. I think it's it's such an important part of of the experience. Uh, we love them because, you know, they don't prejudice against any sort of particular golf. I mean, we were talking about it actually last night down at Long Island. And, yeah, I mean, the most boring golf hole, I think, for most golfers is sort of the 440 or 50-yard par four. It's like, you know, every day it's kind of, it's generally the same club off the tee. For a good golfer, they're hitting a driver and a mid-iron. For the average golfer, they can't get home in two. But suddenly, if you're presented with a 300-yard short par four that's really well designed, the good golfer's got four or five clubs in their hand, which they wouldn't normally have. And they've really, you know, the, the decision can be confusing. It's, it's tantalising knowing that you might be able to drive the green, but at the same time, there might be some sort of dominant hazard there you're trying to avoid. Is it a four iron? Is it a three wood, a rescue? What do I hit? And, I mean, I could play those sorts of holes over and over again, you know. Um, and I, th I think they're, they're fantastic because the average golfer with one or two good swings can make a birdie or can make a par, and yet a tour player can, can be completely humbled and walk off with a double just through a, a poorly played shot or a poorly thought-out shot. Um, Bonnie Doon was unique in that there were, there were four or five 
of these holes. Um, but we didn't really see it as an issue, providing that they were all different. They needed to ask different questions. They needed to look different. They were bunkered differently, um, kind of sh shaped differently as well. And so it is unique in that sense that there's, there's not just one or two. I mean, pretty much every project hand on heart that we will ever be involved with will always have at least one short bar four, usually more than one. Um, but Bonnie Doon is unique in that there's, you know, four or five. But. Yeah, never, never deviate from that particular plan. Uh, what, uh, and, and a short and a short path three, I would say too. I would throw that in. I think uh, uh, 100%. Variety is the spice of the spice of the game. Um, yep. Just a apropos the, the the great three put three and a half at the short power fours. What do you feel characterizes a great short power four? I think there has to be a temptation to. I think generally you want to see the flag. Not always. There's a good one at LA Country Club where you don't. But um, I think usually you want to see that sort of tantalising prospect of a flag dangling above a very large or very scary hazard. And I think uh, I don't like them when they're too long. I kind of like them shorter because I think you want to guilt the good player into going for it. You want to keep pushing those tees forward enough where they can't not want to have a go at it. I, th I think there's a good line I read once about, you know, but the, the very best, most strategic short par fours typically have a penal hazard involved. So I think usually there is some sort of, there's a hazard that you don't want to be in that makes a par very difficult to recover from. And I, I think you want space. I think you want some width. You want... Yeah, you want that that aggressive line or that option where you can play close to a hazard and get a reward. But I, I really like it when there's you know 40, 50, 60 yards away from that hazard where you you can play conservatively, but you're just going to face a much more difficult second shot. Um, I mean, I, I often talk about the third at Kingston Heath, and I think that's such a brilliant bit of design work because the land there gave them absolutely nothing to work with. It's dead flat. It's heavy. It's basically clay. There's a little bit of sand on top. And it's not the conventional way of setting up a slight dog leg. You know, there's not a hazard on the inside corner. It's kind of interesting that it's a, it's a green that actually rewards, it sets up to favour play from the outside of the dog leg. But as a result, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. You stand on the tee and you want to take direct aim at the green and you don't realise that actually if you take that line, it's the worst angle you know, you get down there and realise you've got an incredibly difficult shot to the green. Um, and I, Yeah, I, I don't know how much of that hole is, is by chance, by design, but it, it's one of my favourite short par fours anywhere in the world. It's a bloody great hole, so it is. Um, I was wondering why I had a difficulty with my approach from the inside corner of the dog leg. You've just answered that question. Well, but they did in the... I mean, I, I sat there and watched the World Cup. One of the advantages of living next door... Um, and they all made the wrong decision. Like, it was incredible. I mean, these guys are, like, some of the best players in the world. And they were all taking, like, a two-iron or a driving iron, and they were hitting to the narrowest part of the fairway with the wrong club on the wrong line and finishing in these wicked positions. And it was like, what, what are you not seeing here? Like, no one hit. I mean, it's kind of either, if you want to hit a driver, fair enough. Try and drive it in the greenside bunker and, you know, back yourself. You can get up and down. But otherwise, like. Hit a five iron, go left, like try and get, get the right angle. But they all, I would say 70% of the field like, were playing the wrong shot. It was really interesting. 
but it does it messes with your head because it, it doesn't set up like a normal like a normal a traditional dog leg i guess but as you say it's one of those things with the short fours that that you know you'll you'll try something and it works then you'll go again with a little bit more risk and then something goes wrong and you then go back the next day to the you know chicken out a little bit and it's that oscillation of of i've got it oh no i haven't got it i've got it i'm not yeah you're building confidence and then it fails and yeah. you go back to the start again <laughs> yeah yeah and, and we all know how, how how brittle golfing confidence can be at times yeah absolutely Listen, maybe we can take a look at Jeff Ogilvie's return to, to Australia. And obviously, he's the O in, in OCM. Jeff became a business partner of yours in 2010. Obviously, a partner, someone in absentia until his move back from uh, the US PGA Tour to Melbourne at the end of 2018. I'm assuming that with greater proximity comes greater responsibility and involvement on, on, on Jeff's side. And I can, can imagine having had the pleasure of listening to him um, and, and a big fan whenever he's on on a pod or or available on uh, YouTube, uh, you know, from time to time, I can imagine that a cerebral character like Jeff can, you know, probably be quite useful to have on the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, Jeff moved back to Australia, I think, about three years ago. So, um, you know, ironically, around that time, we started to get more work in America. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, he's, you know, he's very much, uh, an important part of the team and, you know, we he, um, we just finished a trip to America, um, about a month ago. Um, so it was a good opportunity for him to sit here at that stage. I don't think he'd seen the project we we're working on down in the, in the South, um, Southeast of the States. And, um, yeah, we, we, we kind of went on a bit of a um, client visit. And so it was a good opportunity for him to, to get involved in those. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say before, I mean, some of the ideas we have on, on various projects can come from, come from anywhere. Sometimes it might be a, something that Jeff was talking about, other times Ashley, other times myself. And then we kind of typically, you know, throw ideas around and um, until we find the right, you know, path, I guess. But um, no, Jeff's uh, just been great. Um, and, and really more so now that he's actually here and um, I guess his playing days are, well, they're, they're not over, but um, he certainly, I think as he's transitioning from full-time player to part-time player and, and getting a bit more involved with the, the design, it's, it's, it's been great for us. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Look, you alluded to your, your, your involvement with Peninsula Kingswood. Um, Ross Flanagan from the My Love of Golf podcast is a mutual friend of ours and indeed a fellow member of yours at Peninsula Kingswood. I recall Ross telling me about an occasion where he spied you out on the golf course one dewy morning, drawing on the grass with your work boots. The things we do for the love of golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I think you were nearing completion of the project and maybe you were working through a couple of edits. Uh, but he he was he he spied you early in the morning, uh, 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 minding your own business. But uh, he was certainly interested to see what you were doing. You might give the listeners who perhaps don't already know about the PK story a brief intro to the amalgamation that led to OCM's design brief and onwards to the construction of both the north and south courses that are now recognised among the finest that Melbourne Sandbelt has to offer. Yeah, so it was. Uh, so I joined. Yeah, I joined there when I was uh, fifteen, and I had been a member there for what 
Incidentally, but before we started the work, I had joined Kingston Heath and I couldn't justify being a member of two courses. So I, I resigned my membership from Peninsula and then a year later we were engaged to start some work. I've since uh, they asked me back um, once we completed the work. So I'm a member again. But, um, yeah, it was kind of a funny segue. Um, I mean, Peninsula Kingswood, some of the best land, some of the best golfing land uh, really in the country, possibly second only to Royal Melbourne in terms of the kind of golfing terrain. I tell a story. Um, Peninsula is one of the few courses, uh, one of the only courses around Melbourne that wasn't influenced at all by Mackenzie, Russell or the Malcolms. Um, and when Mackenzie was here in 1926 and he was working around the sand belt, he also visited Flinders. So he would have driven within two or three kilometres of Peninsula. And I, I kind of think that if he'd known what was just, you know, over the other side of, of the you know, it would have burned him up to think that he missed an opportunity to work on that side. Um, I can only assume he had no idea. Or he wasn't invited, or or whatever. But they were they were in the process of building the courses at that time. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so obviously some work had been done there over the years prior. Um, they probably were never financially in a position to go through a major renovation. But then they started talks with Kingswood Golf Club about a, a possible merger, and Peninsula were the perfect merger partner because they were a very undergolfed thirty six hole facility. It's a huge property. Uh, 450 acres and it's brilliant golfing terrain it's, it's generally fairly sandy brilliant vegetation and some really good undulation and space which very few of the sandbelt clubs have and I had a, a good relationship with the then president and sort of started having kind of regular coffees with him I guess about you know the courses and you know what if the merger happened, what would you do? And at that stage, they started thinking about, well, we need a new irrigation system and maybe at the same time we'd do a few other things. And then the merger happened and that just grew. And then it was suddenly it was, you know, the greens had been a problem for many years and, and there was a mixture of there were some new greens, some old greens, and they, they weren't great in terms of their condition. Um, there was a bit of a mixture of styles, C certainly nothing approaching the, quality of the you know of the of, of Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and I guess we started the more we talked the more we said you know kind of landed upon that should be the goal you know you need something comparable with the best of the sand belt and I my sort of loose goal to them was that because they started talking about rankings and things like that and it's like well you know when people come to Melbourne overseas guests if they've got a day or two they'll play they'll play Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. And if they've got an extra day, they'll go to Victoria and Metropolitan and then they leave. And, and those four clubs typically stand out from the rest of the Sandbelt. There's a, you know, there's usually, there's Royal Melbourne, then a gap, then comes Kingston Heath, Victoria and Metropolitan, and then there's a big gap and then there's everyone else. I said, you need to turn four into five. You, you need to be part of the conversation. I said, if you're part of the conversation, everything else will take care of itself. Don't worry too much about specific rankings. But suddenly, if you're in that mix, well, then that means you're, you're in the world top 100 kind of conversation as well. You, you, you're thereabouts. So um, that was in 2014. 
And um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the board at the time were brilliant. Um, but Peter Sweeney, the president, was just fantastic. He only ever questioned one thing that we did, and he sort of likes to talk about it. I, I had a mound on the fourth south that I like that I, we built. It was kind of meant to be a little bit like the fourth at the old course at St Andrews. It was a long par four, and I kind of liked how that that mound can kind of bump a, a poor shot away from the target, or maybe you know shoulder it in towards the, the pin, a well-controlled shot. And, um, and he just thought it looked a bit high. So we, we took a foot off it and that was it. That was the only, that was the only uh, criticism he had in a four-year project. Um, but yeah, it, it, so, so it started out with irrigation and, you know, the greens became a subject of, of conversation, mainly from a, a maintenance point of view, making a consistently firm, fast green, you know, then that expanded into, you know, bunker style, the design of the greens, the vegetation and, yeah, we, we, they were an amazing client and remain to this day. We, we still work there a lot. We, we still, we do regular audits. We're constantly trying to improve the course. Um, we just started some work there again for probably about two months. We're doing some um, little bit of sort of minor works, not, not wholesale works, but they've got the exact right approach where they're just constantly, you know, they're, they're going quite well at the moment and they just want to keep, pouring that effort and, and the funds into the golf course and making it better and better and better. And I truly believe, you know, they'll end up in the world top hundred. Um, I think one of the courses or possibly both of the courses will get in the world top hundred. So, so we're very proud of the work there. And for me personally, it means a lot because I was a, you know, or I am a member there, you know, for 30 years. Yeah. I, I can imagine taking on a job and a role like that at a club that you're so closely associated with possibly represents the ultimate representation of tall poppy syndrome um someone you know well reckons that if you're not annoying 20 percent of the membership as a course designer then frankly you're not doing your job properly would you agree with mike's assertion <laughs> yeah i mean look, look i think whenever i do a member's presentation i think the problem some people have is thinking that they convince 100 percent of the audience that uh, you know that they're right you're never going to be able to do that. But yeah, I think if you can convince 80%, um, you're doing very well. So you're never going to please everyone. But certainly the project there was different. You know, it was not, it's different when you're working with people that you know and um, or working for people that you know and, and members that, you know, you've spent so much time with over the years. And it, and it was unique that they were comfortable with that too because some clubs uh, have, uh, that they don't like it when, you know, a member potentially is, is, is working there. Um, I've been very fortunate both there and Kingston Heath that they're very comfortable with um, me as their consultant. Um, but, yeah, it's, it goes beyond – it's not just a, a job or, or a project. You know, you, you really um, – and it's, it's, it's not just a financial aspect or, or profile. It's, you know, you, you're invested in that for, for four or five years. So – I'd hate to think how many hours we sort of spent down there um, getting the project yeah, yeah. right, not getting the design right. So. Yeah, well, I, I believe from, I haven't had the pleasure yet. I do have an invite. Uh, Mr. Flanagan has invited me the next time I get down there and I, and I will, will certainly be availing of that particular invite. But I see that Melbourne has recently been announced as host city for the President's Cup in 28 and 40. No venue has yet been confirmed as yet. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there any truth to the rumour that the PGA Tour representatives 
may have been assessing PK recently with a view to considering it as a possible venue for 28 or for 20, 2040? They were out assessing three courses. So, okay. uh, yeah, Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath and, and PK, they, they, they visited. So, Fantastic, fantastic. We'll, we'll see. That's yeah. good. Well, thank you for confirming that. I had had heard there was a rumor on the ground that that might have been uh, might have been uh, taking place. In addition to obviously that particular rumor, something that that is not a rumor. Obviously, Peninsula Kingswood was in fact used as one of the venues for the Sandbelt Invitational in December twenty twenty one. Um, in seeing the professionals, and I assume you were you were there uh, uh, on on the day that they swung through swung swung through uh, Frankston and PK. Uh, in seeing the professionals play PK during the event, has that led to any design or setup changes with a view to the twenty twenty two version and beyond? No, I mean one of the things we've looked at there. Um, there's some great opportunities to for a composite course, so that even though it's pretty expansive property, both the north and the south courses are sort of limited in length to, let's call it 7,000 yards. And it depends, so it depends on the tournament. I mean, if, if it were an Australian Open, like a men's and women's Australian Open were to be held there, it's probably long enough. You know, I mean, it's, you could always knock one or two of the par fives down to fours, 7,000 yards, 7,100 yards for that sort of event is, is fine. And, and, and for a women, women's event, it's, it's fine. There's a lot of space to, to move tees around. It's interesting, the more you travel, you realise that as much as we hold up the sand belt <clears throat> as being, you know, this pinnacle of design, um, they're actually very short courses, really. Um, and, you know, we've seen it, unfortunately, we've seen it at, at, at places like Royal Melbourne where it, it almost becomes a bit of a wedge fest in in the, the the elite sort of when there's been like a president's cup or what have you unless the weather kind of um is is favorable in the sense that it's the weather's bad you know windy and raining um and you know the, i mean the length of courses they play now in the u.s tour is it's crazy i mean uh, medina where we're working i mean that, that's seven thousand six hundred and fifty yards i mean it's it's almost seven thousand meters and they still shoot, you know, Justin Thomas shot 24 under. It's like it's 700 metres longer than, you know, and it's pretty much week to week. They're usually 7,500 yards. So it depends. So at PK, it depends on the tournament. So if there were, let's just say, okay, let's say, Jay, so Jay Monaghan, you know, two days ago announced um, there's going to be these eight tournaments at the end of the year. Let's say he said, okay, there's going to be one in Australia, one in the Peninsula Kingswood you would play one of the composite courses. So, and, and we've come up with, a, well, one that we really like, and there's there's probably, well, there's quite a few possible ones, but one of the composites that I did was about probably 7,400 yards and a past 70. So, and it, it, it kind of picks up the best parts of the property and also gives you a lot of space for uh, tournament build-outs and, you know, spectators and all the rest of it. So, so I think that is an advantage of that site is that there is some, some opportunities to have a composite that, that can be tailored to the tournament, I guess. Yeah. Your, your, um, your mention of Medina brings us nicely into uh, the, 
Shady Oaks project. So Shady Oaks is located in Fort Worth in Texas and it's of course synonymous with the nine-time major champion Ben Hogan. The uh, well, it, well it depends on whether you count that that, that other one. Uh, I am aware of that other one but uh, for, for, for more information on that Connor, Con, Connor, Con, Connor T. Lewis on the uh, on the uh, golf, uh, the golf history podcast has a has a whole a whole one about that. So if people are interested, I'll put a link on the uh, on the show notes. Thanks for creating more work for me, Mike. But sound. Obviously, the initial development at Shady Oaks was on the on the Little Nine, which progressed seamlessly onto the redevelopment of the main course in 2019. I understand you've recently been overseeing some final flourishes at uh, Shady Oaks. If memory serves, I seem to remember somewhat non-traditional U.S. mowing lines were were uh, were, were rolled out in, in Shady Oaks. A double green, dramatic strategic bunkering, were also suggestions that the membership embraced. How have the development works at Shady Oaks been welcomed by the club? Uh, they've been yeah it's 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 gone remarkably well so they um you know shady was a it's well, it is a fantastic club it's surprisingly undulating the land there it's quite it's quite dramatic actually there was a couple of sort of old creek lines or you know barrancas i guess they'd call them in california that had been filled over trees had sort of encroached in a few places and um but a wonderful club wonderful potential uh, but I guess the, the golf course there, there wasn't a lot of um, thought-provoking sort of decisions to be made the, the fairways were pretty narrow I think that there was only about 20 there's about 24 or 25 acres of, of short grass fairway grass that classic sort of U.S. parkland sort of mowing practices of rough around the greens and narrow fairways with bunkers in the rough um, and we pitched on that project uh, back in about 2014, 2015. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, the, we suggested that perhaps the first project should be the, the Little Nine, which was where it's kind of famous because it's where Hogan would practice. Um, so Ben Hogan, the course was founded in 1958, so by Marvin Leonard, who also started Colonial um, Country Club. And he was a bit of a father figure to, to Mr. Hogan. And um, when a few members convinced him to build Shady Oaks uh, because of the success of Colonial, Ben sort of went from Colonial and, and went across to Shady. So the Little Nine was a, it was a, we still kind of hold it up as, you know, it was one of our favourite little projects. It was a 10-acre space and it was a pretty rudimentary sort of nine pretty simple greens and pretty simple tees. And we turned it into something where there was, you had the ability to, we rebunkered it, um, greens like you would see on a main golf course, on a proper golf course, proper green complexes, whereas previously they were just kind of small little round circles. And, um, you know, golfers have the ability of playing it as nine formal holes or playing it as freeform golf um, or, where so we built some bunkers that are kind of in between holes that if you play it as nine par threes that they make no sense but suddenly if you play it as freeform golf where you the winner of the hole decides to play to whichever green they want these bunkers suddenly come into play because they're kind of the drive bunkers for playing par fours and uh, on top of that it's kind of the greatest practice facility you can imagine you can you can you can hit every shot from a you know two foot putt through to a 300 yard drive so 
uh, that, that was kind of the start of our, of our um, involvement there. And then that built towards doing a full renovation in starting in 2019. Uh, we started in about July 2019 and it went through to pretty much to, to COVID. So we're, we're pretty fortunate. Um, most everything was finished. And then I worked with the superintendent, Brent, and their crew on the finishing touches via Zoom, via uh, using Photoshop to mark up photos, um, sort of this back and forth, this daily back and forth for about two months, which was remarkable really. And it was amazing when I got back there to some of the areas that I hadn't seen finished. That just, it had worked so well. And it kind of proves that there are, it proved to me that there are other ways of working, you know, in the past, I would have dismissed that, no, no, you, there's no way I can finish this without being there. Um, but we were able to just through this constant iterative process of photo change, phone call, Zoom call, FaceTime, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, and, and then it opened to great success. It, it's, yeah, they really embraced. We started mowing the golf course out to the way we would like to see it before we started work. And the membership were, they loved it. They loved this sort of short grass linkages from greens to tees, more fine turf around the greens where suddenly they found themselves being able to putt or chip instead of just kind of gouging it out of the rough. Um, and then, yeah, and, and, and it, was a, it was just a, such lovely people and just a wonderful project to be involved with. It was, it was such an enjoyable process. Um, and then the, the results, I think, sort of speak for themselves. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's received some very favourable reviews and, um, yeah, and, and I think in no small way that went a long way to um, helping us secure the project at Medina. You know, right at, we actually were chatting with Medina right through the COVID um, crisis and so we weren't able to get there and we're very fortunate that um, <clears throat> Shady Oaks was just getting ready to open and we were able to sort of um, virtually take them on a tour around the club, around the course. So they actually travelled to Shady Oaks. And then we had a Zoom call before they walked around the course, had a Zoom call after, <laughs> sent through, you know, information and sort of explained how we changed each hole. And um, I think that they were really impressed with, with the work there. And I, th I think that was a big part of um, what eventually led us to uh, winning the project there. Yeah, I would suspect that you're not the only business person to come to the conclusion that work practices can change due to pandemics and actually you may find new alternative and perhaps equally as good ways to uh, to uh, to divvy up your time to clients I'm interested to know though how you go about pitching for business remotely during a pandemic and obviously I'm speaking particularly and specifically in relation to the Medina 3 um, gig it it was a it was a fascinating process because um, we hadn't spent really much time there at all. Je Jeff had played a tournament there. Um, I was very fortunate. To, I'm good friends with uh, Andy Johnson, who uh, the fried egg, and uh, who lives in Chicago, and um, he very kindly went out to the club and. We spoke on the phone and he took photographs and did drone footage of the entire golf course, but specifically on the areas that 
were really interested in. The club had an incredible archive of old photos, old plans. We had topographic information. And so we just immersed ourselves in it. Um, and you know, Ashley and I spent countless days in the office just pouring through this information and doing a zoom, doing a drone flyover of the hole and looking at the topography and looking at the plans. And we were able to, we really knew that property incredibly well, having not been, not, not really walked the course, um, you know, in detail and put together a pitch. And the, the club really liked kind of the, the theme and the vibe of what we were talking about. We were able to come up with a lot of ideas for the golf course that are still part of our plan now. And it was, it was very satisfying when we got there, when we finally got back there in the height of the pandemic last year, in about June, I would say. We got government permission to leave the country, um, which was a big deal. And we, we spent about two months in America and it was the first time we got back to Shady Oaks. We got back to, we sort of visited with a few clients and potential clients and we spent about a, uh, four weeks at um, Medina. And I think what was really satisfying was walking the course, nothing felt different. You know, it, just, it, it was exactly as, you know, all, all the areas that we hadn't spent a lot of time looking at were exactly as we thought they would be. Even some of the, I mean, we, we first came up with the idea of the rerouting of the last six holes back here in Australia, not over there. And, and that worked, you know, after a couple of days, just getting our head around a few things, it worked just as well on the ground as, as we hoped it would. So, you know, that, that was, yeah, it was interesting. It was completely different but to, to how we would typically work. Needless to say, congratulations. It's uh, very impressive. Oh, thank too. you. Yeah, no, thank you. <clears throat> um, what I'm interested to know, when are you hoping to start and how long will that uh, project take? So we're hoping to start in uh, the end of the golf season this year, so sort of uh, October, November. And then th that'll be more geared around sort of, um, you know, tree removal and some of the kind of the preliminary works rather than shaping. But then as soon as the snow melts next year, it'll be all full steam ahead in terms of shaping. So it'll be all 23 uh, shaping and grassing, maybe a little bit of early 24, and then at this stage kind of a soft opening in summer 24, so June, July 24. Yeah. And then the President's Cup's in 26. Yeah, you guys have been very busy boys of late. Um, obviously, Sandringham Links was something else that you've worked on down in uh, the Melbourne area. Royal Melbourne have held the operating lease at Sandringham Golf Links in Cheltenham since 2010. Now known as Sandy Links, the course is immediately sandwiched between Victoria Golf Club on one side and Royal Melbourne's paddocks on the other. In addition to moonlighting as a car park during major tournaments such as the President's Cup, I understand that OCM has spent some significant time over the last few years remodeling Sandy Links, somewhat more in the image of its bigger siblings. How did your involvement in the Sandy Links redevelopment evolve and, and come to be? Yeah, we, um, our initial contact there was actually through, there was a, a company that kind of a project management firm that had been scouting sites for this sort of home of golf, of, for Golf Australia, PGA and what have you. And we had looked at a couple of different sites with them. And then the conversation, to, I think we may have even suggested it, that 
you know, Sand Sandringham would be the ideal location because it's right in the heart of the sand belt. Um, you know, it, it made a lot of sense geographically. And then one thing led to another and and, and suddenly Sandy became, a, a you know, an, a, an option for this sort of, you know, it was to, to fit a few different purposes. A, there was an opportunity to upgrade the course, but it was also geared around this sort of the home of, of Golf Australia, the PGA Tour, and a, sort of a practice facility for their elite golfers, as well as, you know, upgrading a public facility. Um, so it was interesting. It wasn't a particularly long course before, um, but with the with a lot of these other works, it meant they were going to lose two holes. So then the question turned to, well, what, what sort of design should we look at? And we threw up a few different options. One was for a limited number of holes that were full length, uh, but there was a, a general consensus that they, they wanted sort of a, the traditional number of holes, which meant that it was going to be a much shorter golf course. So we were going to have to split a couple of the par fives. But, you know, the more we talked through it and thought about it, and it gets back to our comments before that, you know, short par fours are some of, you know, some of the greatest holes in the world. Melbourne is renowned for the great short par fours and par threes. We didn't necessarily see it as an impediment, particularly with the whole, you know, the fact that this was going to be the home of Golf Australia and, and, and you know, a lot of their um, work lately has been about um, breaking down the barriers of golf and bringing more people into golf and more women and more families and, um, you know, so a shorter golf course kind of ties in nicely with that, you know, making it as an entry into the game. And so um, then we chatting with, with Richard Forsyth, who is the superintendent at Royal Melbourne, I kind of said to him, look, in some ways, wouldn't, shouldn't our goal here be to create a publicly accessible sand belt experience? So what if, you know, if these were, greens and bunkering that was consistent with what you see next door at Royal Melbourne or over the road at Victoria. I said, part of that is the, the maintenance. What are the chances that we could use the same grass that you've got at Royal Melbourne, the Sutton's mix on the greens? And he, he kind of didn't really think too hard about it. And said, yeah, I think we should be able to do that. And I think he spoke to a couple of people and all of a sudden that was an opportunity. So there's only two courses in Australia that use that bentgrass mix, that bentgrass mix, and it's it's Royal Melbourne and Sandy, and so we use the same grassing um, there on the greens and all the fescue surrounds. A lot of short par fours and short par threes, a lot of emphasis on the ground game, a lot of width. Um, so it's it really has become, and it's only four thousand six hundred meters long. So it's it's only a, a bit over five thousand yards. So it's not long. Um, but it gives the public an opportunity to play the sort of, you know, greens and approach shots and um, the sort of chips and putts around greens that you would expect, you know, anywhere on the sand belt. So over the past few years, there's been a growing trend towards the development of short courses to complement golf offerings at both resorts, resorts and golf clubs alike. So it picks up on that motif that you're speaking about a bit, Sandy, in terms of making it a bit shorter and a bit more playable, shall we say, for, for everybody. What, advantage, yeah, yeah. what advantages do you feel accrue to venues and golf clubs investing in complementary offerings such as short courses? Um, yeah, I mean, it... it, it... I guess at, at Kingston Heath, to your, to your first point, um, I think a lot of we have found a lot of people that are getting into the game, uh, particularly found with women, you know, find the prospect of 
very daunting of, of just turning up on the first tee um, as their introduction to golf. And certainly one of the benefits of the short course at, at, at Kingston Heath that we've been working on is this idea of that it's a, it's a much friendlier introduction into the game for, for kids, for families, for women. It's also an opportunity to extend the golfing life of, of, of some of the older golfers that find, you know, the main course just a bit too challenging. Um, you know, I think with Sandy, it's funny, like if you think about the golfing landscape, I think there's, you know, for me, there's too many of the same sorts of golf courses. It's amazing how many you know, the golf courses that are fairly similar length, fairly similar difficulty, similar par. You know, if you're in charge of golf, if you were starting from scratch and you said, okay, we're going to create 100 golf courses, you, of course, would build, there'd be 10 championship golf courses capable of hosting a tournament and there'd be 50 sort of member-friendly golf courses. But there would be 10 kids' golf courses. There'd be golf courses that were 3,000 yards long. There'd be, you know, there'd be short courses. There'd be nine-hole courses. There'd be, there'd be a much broader spectrum of golf courses than what we have today. Proper golf, Mike. You know, there's a rule book there and that's what it should be. It's proper yeah. golf. Well, and that's been one of the challenges in the last few years is breaking down the, 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 the preconceptions of what golf is. You know, I think Australia is worse than many other places around the world. Um, you know, in the UK, the idea, you know, Prestwick was a 12-hole golf course. You know, there's plenty of quirks on a lot of the Great Links courses and as there are on some of the older courses in the States. But um, I think in Australia for a long time, our version of golf was very sort of homogenized and, uh, you know, anything that strayed too far from convention was, was poo-pooed. Um, I think we're slowly getting there. People are starting to understand that golf doesn't have to be par 72 with four par threes and four par fives and, you know, a certain length and has to be this and it has to be that. It's just taken a while to get there, but I think we're starting to get there now. Yeah, no, and uh, uh, thanks for that. I mean, apropos your 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 mention of the short course in in uh, Kingston Heath, I saw some early digital renderings of the project, courtesy of Harris Kalinka, and I have to say, it looks really cool. The quality of the Harris Kalinka work is is truly phenomenal. I know you've used them on a few other projects as well. What benefits do you feel resources like the one that Harris Kalinka brings to projects uh, bring to bear during? pitching of master and master planning discussions and even just a, a, an opportunity for um, members and, and, and staff members and, and stakeholders just in general to visualize what things are going to actually look like. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it's, in, well, most people can't really interpret a plan, to be honest. They can't, they can look at a two-dimensional plan, but they, I'm not sure in their head they can imagine what that looks like in the third dimension. Um, so we have, for many years, have used, we'll often do photo simulations or I might do a sketch to show people what something might look like to, in the golfer's eye. This just takes that, you know, 10 steps further. And it was interesting at, with Kingston Heath. I mean, we had a lot of support with the memberships for that project. We've done a lot of work on, on plans and, you know, member presentations, but it was amazing how powerful that particular uh, video that you're talking about was because it didn't matter how much you talked about it. I'm not sure the members could really understand what was possible. 
And then suddenly that video came out and they were just like, oh my God, you know, it looks like a golf course. Like I didn't realise there was that much space or I didn't realise that, you know, that you could do that. I mean, we had people, I mean, it, went, it, was, it was almost viral, that thing. I mean, within, within half an hour of that being posted, uh, the, guy, the guys at Medina like, were texting saying, we've got to get one of these. It was half an hour. And, um, but it shows how powerful it is. And it, it's, I just think, yeah, a, a lot of just the average person just can't necessarily interpret what a plan is going to look like in their mind. So it's, it's very helpful. Um, whether, whether it's a committee person or a member or it, to be honest, even sometimes for a contractor to be able to see something, to see a plan in three dimensions is incredibly helpful. Yeah. The lead on project, if you like, and certainly something that I saw a couple of months ago, you posted some drone footage of the Tepetonka site in Minnesota, located, I think, about two hours south of the Twin Cities of Minnesota and St. Paul. What can you tell us about your initial visits? type of site your wanderings have uncovered uh, now that the snow has melted and what sort of course should we expect OCM to deliver? Well, it's straight, It's very similar to the Cups country on the Mornington Peninsula. It's amazingly, so you, there are moments there walking around where you would swear at St Andrews Beach. Um, it's not sand. That's the interesting thing. So it's all glacial. What, what is it? Uh, it's for, for, well, it's, it's kind of, it's soil, like it's, you know, it's, it's, there's clay underneath and there's a, a reasonable, there's a good cap of soil. So it's nice land, but you can't believe it's not sand. Like looking at the, their dunes, they're proper, they're, it's a dunal sort of countryside. Mm-hmm. And um, cutting through a third of the property is this fantastic creek with, a, with bluffs either side. So very steep uh, ravine, very dramatic. Um, so we we had so, so it's really it's it's a great property. We'd come up with we'd looked at a couple of routings prior to going over there, and then we 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 made a visit there during winter. It was very cold. Um, I think it was just after the snow melted. It was April, I would say. We spent about a week on site, and during that we kind of completed. We we ended up changing the routing quite a bit from some of the the initial um, routings we'd done from home, but. It ended up in a really good spot. It really, um, it's a lovely property. We're very pleased with the routing. And then Ashley and I were there again recently, about a month ago, and then we've got another visit in July. So we're hopeful that that starts around the same time as Medina, um, sort of later this year. Okay, and, and obviously you have uh, the winter weather to deal with there as well. So the construction project is likely to be abridged while, it, while, it, while, the, while the snow snow falls and thaws. Yeah, they seem to kind of, uh, it's quite common, they, they do a bit of the heavy lifting just before the snow comes in and then so that when the snow melts, we're straight into shaping, basically. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that very much like St Andrews Beach, there's very little dirt to move. I mean, all, all the green sites are, are pretty much just sitting there. The teas are, you know, you could cut the grass out now and, um, you know, you basically have the teeing sites. There's, there's, a, there's a handful of areas where we're talking about moving dirt, but really not much at all. So it's... It'll be that fairly classic kind of linksy remote, um, destination golf sort of aesthetic, talking about a lot of uh, native grass and, and kind of fescues, I guess, in the roughs. Um, pretty generous fairways, a lot of short grass. Um, yeah, it's a, potentially it's a it's a it's a fantastic golf course and quite different to anything else in Minnesota, which is good. So. Yeah, I recently heard 
your friend Andrew Johnson on the fried egg, uh, who alluded, I think, to another OCM project in the USA. Certainly, I got the impression that the project was in addition to the Tepetonka project. What, if anything, can you tell us about this additional particular piece of industry gossip, if I haven't picked that up wrong? Feel free to tell me to uh, mind my own business, but, you know, I hey. I don't, I don't know what he could possibly be talking about. You don't? Okay. The smile would tend to no, suggest no. otherwise. <laughs> No, we're, we're working on a project at the moment uh, in the southeast um, of the state. So fantastic. We visited the site in uh, July last year. So on that visit, um, it's an incredible property, 2,000 acres of sand, um, some beautiful vegetation, uh, pine trees and sort of some low scrub that is reminiscent of I guess the sand belt at the home and, and the heathland. Um, terrific client. Uh, we've got a great team and we've, we have cleared, we've basically finished the routing and we've sort of cleared um, and are shaping at the moment on kind of half a dozen holes and um, kind of clearing ahead as well. So it's, yeah, it's, that's about as much as I can. I can tell you about, but it's a, it's a, there. Yeah, we're definitely working on another project there, and I, at, at some point in the future, they'll divulge more details. But it's a, it's a wonderful project. So. That's great. I look I look forward. We look forward to hearing more about that in due course. And yeah, thank you for yeah. sharing. Thank you for sharing yeah, no that, that with us. <laughs> uh, no listen, just new bills are obviously a little thin the ground here in Europe, and given that OCM generally appear to favour only having two large projects on the go simultaneously. I suspect that you probably have enough in your collected plates just at this very moment. However, I'm interested to see and to understand if you might perhaps have any interest in jumping on an Irish or a UK project if the right opportunity were to materialise. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It just, for whatever reason, uh, we just ha have never, well, we just haven't had a lot of um, contact, I really, I guess, from, from the UK. But, you know, some of our favourite golf courses are in, you know, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, the continent. Um, we've all travelled there quite a lot. Jeff played the tour there for, you know, three or four years. I've travelled there five or six times. Uh, Ashley as well has, has been there a couple of times. So, no, we would love the opportunity to work um, in the cradle of golf, so to speak. Um, but it's just, yeah, most of the, the work we've done, to date has been, you know, Australia, a, a bit in Asia and America. You alluded to your sketching earlier on, and I'd like oh, to yeah, just, yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of your particular artistic bent and that you're responsible for some of the more most unique contemporary course guides and renderings that I have yet had the pleasure to encounter. There's oh. something very Tom Simpson-esque about your drawing style. I hope I, you don't mind me saying that. Uh, that's no, no. One, of the, one of the highest compliments I can make. I mean, I, I'm, I absolutely, to, yeah. I, I struggle to do stick man, Michael. So, you know. <laughs> so, I'm assuming that the ability to draw can be quite a useful skill when in the midst of a roughing in, shaping, and final, final editing. Ah, uh, for sure, yeah. So, my dad um, uh, was or is, uh, well, he, he was an art teacher for, and my mum was actually too for you know, 40 years. And um, dad was a good artist, or he's a good artist. Um, he doesn't draw or paint so much anymore. And so from an early age, I was interested in art and art history particularly. Um, and so I, you know, I dabbled and, you know, dad, I think, taught 
you know, a lot of the skills, whether it was subconscious or consciously when I was, you know, a teenager. And um, so, so I was decent at drawing. But it, when I got into golf course design, suddenly there was a reason to draw. Um, and, it, and I qu- kind of quickly realized that it was something that not that many people could do. And it's quite helpful. You know, people could do an aerial, you know, line work, you know, doodle of a green and a bunker or whatever, but not many people could actually do a, <clears throat> a view of the green as though you were standing on the fairway. And, you know, this is what I'm kind of thinking the green would kick up and it would do this and it would do that. And it, it was amazing how helpful I, I realised it, it was to whether it was to convey it to a committee person or to be honest, quite often with, you know, one of the guys working in the field, one of the shapers, because they were so used to just seeing things in plan version to be able to show them something and they could suddenly understand what you meant because you could see it in the third dimension um, because it was this sort of real life sketch. And so I think that convinced me to, um, you know, spend a bit more time on, on, on my artwork. And then I, um, I guess in terms of the course guides, I, you know, after we were involved at Barnboodle Dunes, the, the owner there, Richard, was keen on a course guide and I think it was suggested that I, you know, I could do one of those and I was like, oh, okay, I probably can. But I had done course guides just for myself in the past and so so then, yeah, I did a course guide for Barnboodle Dunes and then not really advertising it, people saw that and then said, oh, I wouldn't mind one of those and so then almost it became... The clubs where we worked typically wanted one of my course guides and I sort of uh, progressed from pen and pencil to watercolour. I, I really like, you know, painting in watercolour and then it kind of went from there and then I've, I've done some big course plans and, and sort of renderings, if you like, of, of full course layout. I did one for the north and one for the south of, of Peninsula and I did one for the old Kingswood site and Lake Karen up I've done and Royal Queensland and, you know, a few others. So... Yeah, it's ended, I've ended up doing quite a lot. Um, I, I do enjoy it still. I, I like to do one or two things each year, but it's just finding the time more than anything. Um, I don't have that much time to do it now, but it's, it still is very helpful. I just did, um, I did these actually the other day for, um, for the mystery client we were talking about. But, you know, just it's, it's helpful just being able to do, you know, some sketches of, you know, for the ownership of like, well, this is how we see the whole looking and these are the characteristics of the whole where, uh, yeah, I guess not many people can do that. So it's, it, it's, it's a helpful skill. And so I enjoy doing it. I, it's, I think it complements the work we do as designers. Um, and when time allows, I still enjoy doing, you know, whether it's just a worked up piece um, or whether it's a course guide or whether it's a rendering. Yeah. I will certainly take the time to compliment any day of the week. So. Not a problem. Well, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's warranted <laughs> and and earned. Certainly, when counterpointed with my limited and limited is is I should be far too far too good to me. My limited <laughs> arts. Uh, listen, I, I I think you probably answered this question in terms of your your last answer, but I'm assuming that golf renderings, which obviously is your alter ego as a, as a, as a, as, a, as a, an artist. I'm assuming golf renderings commissions are available only to OCM customer uh, customers. It's kind of gone that way. Yeah. And it wasn't deliberate, but it gets a bit awkward now. Um, I've had a few inquiries from clubs recently where another architect has done the work or is doing the work. And they're sort of asking whether I could do some renderings of holes, but it's, 
it, it's sort of a bit awkward because I've got a fairly distinctive style and then yeah, it, it, it sort of doesn't work so well. So, yeah, so, so, so in the end, I mean, it, I have done some pieces, that, you know, I've done some paintings of Pine Valley or whatever and, yeah, I mean, you can people can buy them if they want but um it seems to be going that way where i'm typically doing more work for that's on the back of work we've done as designers where we've completed a project and then the club have said i would really like like at lonsdale we you know finished that project and then they they were aware of the course guides and so they wanted a course guide done or victoria was the same peninsula um so it's yeah it's it is not by design, but it's kind of ended up going down that path, I would say. Gotcha, gotcha. Listen, we're into the uh, conclude, <laughs> the, the concluding section. Maybe it's cunning, though. So if you, if you really want a course guide, you've got to hire a designer to do the work. Yeah, yeah, and that, then you that, can get a course guide. That, 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 that particular light bulb just went on about two or three minutes yeah. ago. <laughs> Demand management, my friend. Demand management. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, we're we're getting into the concluding section, um, and I okay. ask my 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 guests the same two concluding questions. Obviously, as a well a very well travelled gentleman, um, I, I'm sure. However, I'm sure you've a few locations left to see. I'm interested interested to see where the top five courses on your bucket list are. These can be repeat or debut plays. If five isn't enough, there's as much leeway as you need. So, what? Um, what, what what's on your bucket list? To play or to see? Well, either or. You can interpret the question however you wish. Okay. Um, I've not seen much of the continent, so it's a big miss. Uh, you know, I would love to get to France and Holland and see you know a lot of Simpsons work there, and I haven't seen it. Um, so I know that's not a specific course, but uh, that that's an area that I, I haven't seen. I haven't been to Dornoch, which is a tragedy. I've seen a lot of the UK and I've seen, you know, um, I've seen most of the great golf in Ireland. Um, a lot of the States I, I, I've been fortunate enough to see. I, I would love, I would love to play Augusta. I would, it would be a, it's funny. The first time I, you know, I, I think, Golf architecture junkies can get a bit cynical about Augusta at times and talk about, you know, how it's been ruined or, you know, this has happened and that's happened. But still, I was blown away the first time I went to Augusta. I thought it was incredible. And it just looked like it was so, it looked so much fun, you know, off, off, the, off the members' tees. So much space. I don't think people realise how much width there is there. You know, there's more width in Royal Melbourne. And... Um, yeah, it would be a dream come true to play Augusta. Um, a couple of courses in Long Island that I haven't been to that I'd like to see, Fishers Island, Maidstone, um, the continent. I would say that you know, Seminole, I haven't been to Seminole. I know it's not exactly five courses. I've sort of thrown a few in there. That's but. right. No, I mean, you, you were given you were given enough yeah. rope to hang yourself there. So yeah, no. but the continent's the real me. So I, I really would like to spend you know a couple of weeks working through um, you know some of France and Holland. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so, somebody said to me recently that arguably you can draw a line south to the south of Paris, predominantly, and most of the good golf in Europe is north of that. Yeah. 
Um, the final question uh, is with regard to book recommendations. For listeners oh, yeah. look, looking to yep. augment their golf library, you might recommend two golfing books that they simply must own. Sure. Uh, Tom Doak's Anatomy of a Golf Course. Such a brilliant book, so well written. Tom has an amazing ability to talk about complex things in a very simple way, very easy to understand. I, I mean, uh, it's probably sacrilegious to say it, but I think he took the concept of Alistair McKenzie's golf architecture, his little simple book, and really took it to a new level. Uh, I think it's an incredible book. Um, so that one. And the other one I would say is uh, one of my favourite books is Jeff Shackelford's Cypress Point Club book. I think, I know it's not, you know, it's, it's basically quotes and photos, but it showed it was amazing foresight to have a photographer walk around with Mackenzie playing the golf course the, the day before it opened or the week before it opened. And it kind of shows Mackenzie in absolute, he was at the top of his game there, you know, and, and such an incredible golf course that you would, I would, if I had a time machine, you know, if you ask the question, if you had a time machine, you could go back to any time in, you know, in history and play golf course, that would be it. To play Cypress Point and, you know, just before it opened there. So I would say they're my two books. I still look at Shackelford's book all the time. You know, it's got, and, and not because of the text, just because of the photos. It's an incredible, incredible book. Before I let you go, Mike, you might let us know how listeners might find you online and on the socials, both in terms of OCM and golf renderings. We're not the most active on social media. Um, however, look, we try really hard to we sort of say, oh, yeah, we, we want to, you know, we'll put a post out every week or whatever, but weeks slip by, it becomes months. But anyway, um, so, so, yeah, we've got Twitter and Instagram, I think, are both sort of OCM golf. Uh, we've got a Facebook page as well. Our website is 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 ocm.golf, um, which we were very pleased with when we got that as an address. Um, and then me personally, yeah, um, Mike Cocking at I've got Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And then I've also, as you mentioned before, got golf renderings where all my artwork is um, is also on Instagram and Twitter as well. So. Excellent. Well, Mike Cocking, we may have been a while organizing this chat. I can assure you that the juice was worth the squeeze. Um, It's been my absolute pleasure to host you on the pod. You might consider jumping back on me at some point in the future. Many thanks once again for your time and continued success to you, Ashley, Jeff, and the OCM team. Go easy. Thanks so much, Shane. Okay, terrific. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.